0: I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to study together verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 2. In your bulletin is a sheet that has an outline of our study, as well as on the back side are some questions to help us in interacting with others and sharing about the message as well as applying it to ourselves. I would encourage you to look at that this afternoon. You know, there are scenes from the Christmas story that, through the years, have just become embedded in everyone's memory, and one of those is of three kings on camels, following a star to Bethlehem, and when they get there, they find Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus in a stable, and the baby Jesus is in a manger. And uh, he had just been born there. The only problem with that that's embedded in our minds is that most of that is not true. Most of that is not the way it happened. Now, the last time that I preached, I started a series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And on those times when I preach, we'll go sequentially through the book. This morning, we come to chapter 2, and we're going to, in chapter 2, discover the rest of the story, how it really happened, as well as its application to our lives. Now, why is this here? Uh, We saw in the first of our studies in Matthew that we have four Gospels, uh, all telling the story of Jesus Christ, all absolutely inspired of the Holy Spirit, all in agreement, and yet each one from a different perspective. And Matthew wrote from the perspective of a Jew... Written with a Jewish audience in mind, presenting to them that Jesus came as the King of the Jews, the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy. And so, since his theme is uh, Jesus is the King, he wants to make sure that we know that Jesus is the King, but not just any King. And uh, he wants us to know that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that we will do as the Christmas carol says that we just sang, Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. May that be in our heart as we will leave the service later as a result of what we will see in Matthew chapter 2. Now... This is not just something, of course, that Matthew invented in his imagination. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was not at Bethlehem. He didn't see this. He was one of the chosen 12 disciples who followed the Lord. And uh, he, he learned all the things that the Lord was teaching the disciples. And then after the, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these things that we would would know. But this was not new information uh, that Jesus is a king and so on, as we'll see. First of all, uh, this is not new information. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's not something that all of a sudden someone just dreamed this up. This is a plan that God had established from before even the beginning of the earth. God told King David, that David would have a descendant who would sit on his throne uh, forever. And so therefore, that's why we had the genealogy in chapter 1 that we studied in our first uh, first study of the book of Matthew. That genealogy showed us that Jesus is the descendant of David, and in fact we saw he's the only descendant of David who would be qualified to sit on David's throne. And I can't go into the reasons now why uh, there was a problem that erupted during the years of the genealogy. And God had said, no one from this, this line from through this man can be the king because of, of this, the sin of Israel. But yet... God had a plan, and that's where the virgin birth comes in. And we saw that uh, in in the first study, that 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 makes uh, this possible, that Jesus would be that king. He would be the king who is the Messiah, God's anointed one. So that's not new information. Uh, Also, God told Israel in the Old Testament that their Messiah would not only be king of the Jews, but he would be the king of the nations. And we have sung about that this morning. We've talked about that and read about that, even in in the earlier parts of the service. That it's not just king of the Jews, but that all nations would come and bow before him. That is not news. So uh, in, the, in the light of all of that that God had revealed... We discover in Matthew chapter 2, some people from another nation, not Jewish, who came and acknowledged Jesus as King. A picture, it really happened in history, but it also provides a picture of what would be happening. The people from every tongue and tribe and nation would come and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. It is really an interesting and exciting passage in light of all of that. So in keeping with this theme that Jesus is the king, Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth, but he doesn't write about shepherds like Luke does. Luke presents the the, uh, life of Christ from the perspective that Jesus is a man, sinless man. And one of the interesting things in presenting him as a man, the fact that the shepherds, the lowly shepherds came. But Matthew doesn't talk about that because he's emphasizing Jesus is the king. And so he records this particular amazing event of these people coming. Now, we have our song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And just about everything about that song is a little mixed up. It was not kings who came. But as we are going to see, they were considered king makers. Which is very interesting that king makers would come to Jesus in Bethlehem. But we'll see that uh, as, as we go along. We call those king makers... The wise men, as they are in, in the English Standard Version of the Bible, which I'm using and reading from, other translations call them uh, magi. Now, what in the world are magi? Well, the the word magi is uh, a word that speaks of of great ones, and and we're going to see a little bit later, uh, particularly why this group were called Magi, but we'll get to that. Uh, Luke, in his gospel, shows God directing the whole Roman Empire so that a census comes at the right time to get Joseph and Mary from Bethlehem where they live, excuse me, from Nazareth where they live, to Bethlehem. Because Scripture prophesied, Micah 5.2, Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. They live in, uh, in, in, in terms of how fast they traveled. They lived a long ways from Bethlehem. How are they going to get there? God moves the empire of Rome to decree that everyone must go home to their hometown and enroll in this census. So it's interesting that Luke presents God working these circumstances. But Matthew, in his gospel, shows something just as amazing, that God uses the sky to get foreign kingmakers to Bethlehem. That's a great reminder that God directs circumstances. God is the one who is directing the circumstances of our lives. He's directing the circumstances of this world. And as a Christian, one of the things that uh, we are to do in acknowledging that he is king is to realize, yeah, he's the one that's directing the circumstances. Why do I live in New Jersey? He was directing the circumstances. What about the person I'm I, I'm married to or I'm not married, but I might marry someday? God is directing the circumstances. And on and on it goes. It's pictured here. And God directing the circumstances to get the wise men uh, to Bethlehem. Well, let's read how it really happened, opening our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. i I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word as I read verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. You may be seated. (laughs) So as we look at this, first of all, in verses one through two, we'll see the motivations of the wise men. What made them pack up and go to Israel? Look beginning in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so they were not there for the birth. He's already been born when they started out on their journey. Uh, he's, it's at least several months after Jesus was born. Perhaps as long as a little less than two years since Jesus was born. And so during this time, Joseph and Mary moved from the stable. That was just temporary because there was no room in the inn. They've moved to a house. So that tells you that every manger scene that has the wise men and their camels at a, at a manger, at a stable, that's not how it happened. But we'll continue with how it really happened. But remember, this was not an ordinary birth. This was to be a virgin conception and a virgin birth, as we saw in the last verses of chapter 1. Unique in every way. And so it's after this unique birth that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. This Herod, there are several Herods in the New Testament, and so to distinguish them, we call him Herod the Great. He's the, the father of the Herods that are mentioned later on in the New Testament. But believe me, Herod the Great was not in David's line. When we went through that genealogy of David, you did not see Herod's name there. In fact, Herod the Great wasn't even Jewish. That's a striking thing. Uh, Herod the Great, see the Romans, the Romans had conquered the land of Israel. They were in control. They put up kings and they took down kings. They selected this man Herod to be the king uh, with the title of king in this particular area of the promised land. He was what was in those days called an Idumean. Uh, the Old Testament uh, word for the Edomians was Edomites. You remember the Edomites from the Older Testament. They were not Jewish. Uh, they were uh, descendants of Esau rather than of Jacob. And so he's not Jewish, but yet because he had some leadership abilities and so on, they identified him and made him the king. Uh, From God's point of view, Herod was a pretender to be the king of the Jews, and he liked him to be called the king of the Jews. And Herod had no legitimate right to be the king sitting in Jerusalem. And he was a tyrant. And he was suspicious and he was jealous. But he had some good qualities. He was a great organizer. He was a magnificent builder. He built some, some structures and places in the land of Israel that are still there today. And if you ever go to Israel, you'll visit some of those places where that Herod built. He, he was amazing in, in that regard. But, the Romans what they were interested in was someone that would keep peace they did not want uprisings and so they chose him particularly thinking uh, we think he may be able to deal with the different factions and uh, keep peace in this land so anyway back to verse 1 so in the days of Herod the king behold Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Again, notice, it does not call them kings. The Greek word that that is, uh, you remember Matthew wrote originally in Greek. The Greek word, by the way, is not wise. Uh, the Greek word is great ones, which is comes out as magi. So that's where the term magi comes from. Uh, But the ESV in translating, it uh, doesn't want to use a Greek word in there, uses an English word, uh, the wise ones. But the thing about the Magi, that was also a title. It was a title for a Babylonian Persian group who specialized in the mixture of astronomy and astrology, plus... They were really into the interpretation of dreams. Now, I said they were a Babylonian Persian group. You remember in the Older Testament that because of Israel's sin, God brought judgment on them, and Israel was, was conquered by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. Later, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's empire, was conquered by the Persians and so the babylonians and the persians kind of melted together well there was this group of magi in the babylonian uh ca- capital we learn about them in the book of daniel in the old testament and uh, uh we'll we'll talk about his his role in this in a little bit but uh, they uh, during the before the time of of Daniel they, these people called the magi mixture of astronomy and astrology also very into interpreting dreams and they had great influence on the the emperor and the king and the ruler of Babylon and later Persian in fact by the time of Christ no Persian was able to become king unless he was approved by the Magi in, in Persia and crowned by them. It was the Magi who would crown the new king of the Persians. So they were called the kingmakers of the Middle East. Now, by the way, as we are introduced here, it does not say there were three of them. Nowhere in the Bible does it say three. So they're not kings, and probably were not three. But a legend arose in the Middle Ages because of the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A legend arose, well, there were three magi, and they even gave them names. How they came up with the names, I don't know. But Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior were the names given to them in the Middle Ages. No shred of evidence in the Bible at all. It is man-made. And in the 12th century, a bishop in Cologne, Germany, even claimed to have found their skulls and put them on display in the Cathedral of Cologne. And I'm not sure, but I think They are still there, but I'm not absolutely sure of that. Well, so here come these magi, these wise men, and they came from the east. So that would be the area we call Mesopotamia. It's the area today that is Iraq and Iran. All of that area together is where these kingmakers came from. Now, remember, I said nowhere does it say that there were three of them. Probably, they set out with a whole bunch of them and a thousand Persian cavalrymen to protect them. Because there's some real conflict going on in this part of the world at that time. And the Persians, even today, are noted for their horses, not their camels. Probably the only camels that would have been in the procession would have been carrying the baggage. The, uh, the wise men, the magi, and, and the soldiers with them probably came on horses. Well, they came to Jerusalem. So that's 570 miles from Persia to, to Jerusalem. 570 miles is the crow flies. But most people in those days did not take the direct route because that meant they had to cross across a large desert. They would follow what's called the Fertile Crescent, the Mesopotamia, Euphrates-Mesopotamian River Valley, which goes north and south. So they would kind of gone on an arch, like an arch to, uh, to get to Jerusalem. And that would have extended the trip to being either 750 to 900 miles. So this is a big deal. It's not just going next door by any means. And so a picture, this large number of very important people considered kingmakers with maybe a thousand cavalrymen to uh, uh, protect them coming into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they, they were foreigners and uh, not trusted by the Jewish people or the Romans. And uh, here they are. That would have created a big stir. That's going to explain why Herod gets very troubled. So it's this large number of people with an entourage from a country that Rome, the Roman Empire, has not conquered. And really distrusts. So here they are, and in verse 2, they were saying, uh, Matthew wrote in the Greek language, and in Greek, he put this verb saying in, in present tense, which means continuous action. It's not just that they came in Jerusalem and went to one place, visitor center or something, and said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Everywhere they went in Jerusalem, they met this person, that person, that person. They're asking, where is he that's born of the king of the Jews? Because they thought, surely, if we know about the birth of the Jewish king, they will know, but as we'll see, uh, they don't. But here they come. They assumed that everyone in Jerusalem would know. So they came saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Again, that's Herod's title. He doesn't legitimately have it, but it is his title. How would men in Persia know anything about the birth of a Jewish king? And why would they care? Why would they travel all this distance to worship this particular Jewish king? Well, the wise men, the Magi, are mentioned prominently in the book of Daniel. I remember studying the book of Daniel, and Daniel is Jewish. He's been uh, taken captive from his home in Jerusalem, taken to uh, to the capital uh, of of Babylon, and uh, he's. It's noted that hey, this guy, he has some good qualities. Let's let's kind of of uh, encourage him, and he could help us in Babylon, and uh, he becomes. Part of this class of people that is called Magi. Well, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And the Babylonians put a lot of stock in dreams. They said, when you have a dream, it's supposed to give you a message. And the king couldn't think of what in the world the message of this dream would be. So he went to the Magi. They are experts in interpreting dreams. And he said, Now, since I don't know what the dream means, I don't want you to hear about the dream and just come up with anything. So I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. You tell me what the dream was and what it means. And if you don't, I will kill every one of you. And so they're scared. Daniel, a man of God. God reveals the dream to Daniel and what it means. Daniel is able to give that message, and that spares the lives of all the Magi. And you read that in the book of Daniel. Probably that really caused the Magi to hold Daniel in esteem. It definitely did Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar put him in the highest position over these. So that's background. That's background. Daniel's not alive now. That's been some several hundred years before. But Daniel started something among the Magi, and uh, uh, Daniel told, would have told the Magi about God's promises uh, to the Jewish people, and the promises would include a Messiah's very prominent prominent part, and um, he probably. Gave them copies of Old Testament scripture. Daniel had scripture that he read. Probably he left copies for them that they would have read and handed down for several generations until this time. So they have some copies of scripture. And here's what Daniel has told them about a coming Messiah. It's interesting. The only place in the Old Testament that gives prophecy as to the time when Messiah will be born is in Daniel. It's Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 7. So we can we can speculate, can't prove it, but we can speculate that they had studied Daniel 9, 24 through 27 and had calculated. This is about the time of the coming of the Messiah. So, and another interesting thing to take in consideration, unlike the other Old Testament books of the uh, the Old Testament that were written in Hebrew, Daniel, part of Daniel was written in Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonians. So the Magi have in their possession some Hebrew scripture, but they also have this book of Daniel, which is written in their country, not in the land of Israel, and in their language. That would get their attention. So they had a book written in their language and written by a man associated uh, with their group. So that gives them information about when this king of the Jews is going to be born. They have another clue. They knew about a star because of a man named Balaam that we read about in the book of Numbers. There's indication that Balaam was a Babylonian, perhaps even a a Magi from Babylon. And uh, several hundred years before the time of Daniel, in Numbers, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, he prophesied, quote, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So they they have scripture that talks about the timing of the birth of the king of the Jews. And then they have someone that they are familiar with, Balaam, who gave a prophecy concerning a star that would herald the birth of this king. That is very significant. So they knew about a Jewish king and a star because of what God had revealed in scripture. Uh, What exactly was this star? Both the Hebrew and the Greek, the Hebrew of the Old Testament and Greek of the New Testament, both the Hebrew and Greek words for star are used for star, those bodies that we see in the heavens. But both words are also used figuratively to represent any great brilliance. Or any uh, radiance. So keep that in mind. Now, there have been all kinds of guesses about the star. Was it a literal star? Some people have said, well, it must have been the planet Jupiter, or others, a junction, conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Some have said, well, it must be a comet or a meteor. Uh, We know, by the way, it's not an actual star. Because we're going to see it come and, and, and rest it over the house in Bethlehem. Any star that rests over a house is going to destroy the house and the whole planet Earth. It's impossible. So it, it's not a star. So it must have been something like the Shekinah. You remember the Shekinah? in the Older Testament. The Shekinah was the glory of God, the visible glory of God that led the children of Israel, showing them where to go as they were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. And so this, this uh, Shekinah, sometimes it's called the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah was a, called a pillar of cloud That led them. So when God wanted them to leave from where they had been stationed for a bit, the pillar of cloud would get up and it would move and they would follow. And at night, you can't see the cloud, so it was a pillar of fire. And then later, the Shekinah rested on top of the tabernacle. And that was a representation that the presence of God is there uh, at the tabernacle and later the temple. And so I think, uh, I, I can't say for sure, but I personally think this is the Shekinah of God that, as we're going to see, came and rested over that house in Bethlehem. And isn't it interesting that the Shekinah represented the very presence of God, God with us, you remember from chapter one, the angel telling about the coming birth of the Messiah says, And he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Very, very significant. Well, continuing in verse, then verse one, the wise men came from the east. And they came to Jerusalem, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Some King James, or some translations, translated it, we saw the star in the east. Another translation of that same Greek expression is as the ESV has it, uh, we saw it when it rose. Here's the point. They saw the appearance of the star, of Shekinah, but the Shekinah didn't lead them. Uh, I know we, we always incorporate that into the story at Christmas time that the star led the, the, the three wise men uh, from Babylon, from Persia, to the land of Israel, but the Bible doesn't say that. They saw it, it was a sign. It was so different from anything they had ever seen in the heavens that it got their attention. And apparently they remembered Balaam's prophecy. And so it was a sign telling them the king has been born in Israel. And they assumed that the king of Israel would be born in Jerusalem. The other kings were, but this one wasn't, but they didn't know that. And so the star appeared, and then they took off. It's not that they followed the star, but they took off. And then then they say, um, And we have come to worship him. Now that does not necessarily mean that they knew that Jesus was God. That's a possibility, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. The Greek word that's translated worship means worship, of God, but it also can mean to pay respect to one. It can mean to give homage, and that's what they're going to do, for sure, is give homage. And we'll see that as we get to it. So they are probably saying, we want to come and worship him. We want to bow before him. We want to bow as a symbol of our submitting to him. He is the king, and to pay him homage. Well, then in verses 3 to 6, we have the agitation of Herod. Look at verse 6. Or, excuse me, um, uh, verse 3. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. He was troubled because this king that they were telling him about, uh, that they were wanting to see, is a threat to his position. He's been appointed by Rome to, to keep the peace, and Rome had not conquered Persia. There was an uneasy truce between the two. And in fact, um, there was, uh, part of giving Rome great insecurity about, about Persia was not too long before this, the Magi had uh, made a king, had appointed a king. Uh, to defeat Rome, and that king was defeated. And you can, you can picture Herod saying, uh-uh, they're up to it again. They want to overcome Rome, get, get Rome kicked out of here. And, and, and so Herod is very troubled. And then it, it's interesting that it says, well, not only is it Herod, but all Jerusalem with him. Herod could be very angry, and when he got angry, everyone else got troubled. He was very famous for being mean, a tyrant. He killed his own, one of his own wives. He killed a couple of his sons. Uh, if someone was a threat, he didn't mind killing them. In fact, we learn in history that when he was very sick and knew that he didn't have long to die, And he knew because he was such a tyrant that there would be rejoicing in Israel when the news was announced that he had died. So consequently, he arrested a whole bunch of Jewish people, had them in a prison waiting for the day he would die. And he had issued a command when he died, those Jewish people were to be killed so that the Jews would not be singing and dancing and happy when he died instead they would be mourning by the way that order was not followed after he died but that gives you an idea of what kind of person he was no wonder the people were troubled as well and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. So he gets the high priest, and there's other priests that assist the high priest who are important. And he got the scribes. They were authorities on Jewish law. And the Gospels they are often called the lawyers. <clears throat> and he gets them together and uh, it says in verse 4 he inquired about them where the christ was to be born christ that's the he, that's the word for messiah so herod has in his mind this king they're talking about must be the messiah i've heard about so he wants to know from the religious leaders where is messiah supposed to be born So, in verse 5, they told him. It's interesting, they were united on this. From what we know of this body, they didn't get united on too many things. But they were united on this because it's clear in the Old Testament. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. That's six miles away from Jerusalem. And it was the hometown of David. It's where David was from. And so, even... Uh, In this time, it is often referred to as the city of David. So uh, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, it's Micah chapter 5, verse 2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. What a wonderful prophecy! that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, and he's going to be a ruler. Not a ruler like Herod. Not a ruler like uh, like Caesar. But look what it says. And from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now those words are not in Michael 5.2. They are uh, probably from 2 Samuel uh uh, chapter, um, I, th- I don't have the reference with me, but a, a, a reference in Second Samuel, where um, where God speaks to David. So there's two parts to this prophecy. There's a the prophecy that Messiah is going to be a ruler. He's going to be strong, ruling with authority. You definitely see that in Scripture. But he's going to be like a shepherd, who tenderly cares. For his sheep this is a unique ruler and Jesus Christ today rules in the heart of every believer if you're a believer if you're a Christian he is ruling in your heart what's his rulership like oh yeah he's with authority but he's also like a shepherd gently leading his sheep so question is does he rule in your heart Have you come and submitted to him as your Savior and Lord and repented of your sin? Well, then we have the conniving of Herod in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He's trying to get information from them about this birth, but he wants to keep it under wraps. Uh, To minimize any threat to his position. He's still thinking of the possible threat to his position. So uh, he tells them secretly and ascertains from them what time the star appeared. That will give him a clue as to how old this child is. So in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He is lying through his teeth. He doesn't want to worship him. He wants to kill him. He wants to get rid of the threat. And so then that brings us to the worship of the wise men. And that's in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, <clears throat> after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them. Remember, they're in Babylon, they're in Persia, and this, this light appears different than any light they have seen. They have not seen it since, but they're listening to the king. And they're on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. They had not seen the star until they come out from meeting with Herod, and all of a sudden, there it is, and it moves. It leads them to Bethlehem. Well, verse 10, When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We cannot even imagine how excited and joyful they were. And going into the house, um, that certainly tells us they didn't go to the stable, but they went to the house. And when they went to the house, <clears throat> they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down it's their way of saying to the child you are high oh yes you're this little baby but who you really are you are high and we are low you are great and by comparison we are nothing even though they're called magi the great ones And so they fell down and they worshipped, notice the pronoun, him. They did not worship Mary or Joseph. Don't make that mistake. They worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus. And they are doing what they said they wanted to do in verse 10. Come that we might worship him. And as part of their worship, they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts. These gifts are some of the most precious, valuable gifts in those days that you could give. They are typically gifts you would give to a king. If you were to give a birthday gift to King Charles, what would you give? You know I mean, here's this man who is multi-millionaire and, and so on. What in the world would you give? A pen? You know, a little pen and pencil set? Uh, I don't think so. So they, they had gifts that were fit for a king. The first one was gold. That was, of course, has long been considered the most precious of metals. It's a gift fit for a king. We've all heard about King Tut and seen pictures of all the gold that was put in his tomb. Uh, it's just uh, astounding. That that uh, gold has always been considered a gift, good enough to give to a king. And then they gave him frankincense. We know about gold today, but most of us have never bought any frankincense. What's that? Well, frankincense is a resin from a tree, and it produces a very uh, sweet smell when it is burned. And in the time of the Roman Empire, it was as important to the economy of Arabia where the trees grow as oil is to Arabia today. It was that valuable uh, in that time. And history says the Roman Empire almost went bankrupt buying it. It was used in the best perfumes of the day. It's a gift for a king. And then there's myrrh. Myrrh also comes from the sap of a tree that's found in in Arabia and also in India. Again, used in the best perfumes and also used as incense. It was used as an incense in the temple in Jerusalem and so on. Giving these gifts is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. I'll give you a couple of references uh, just to be aware of. I don't, I'm not going to take time to read them. But Psalm 72, 10, through, 10 and 11, and verse 15. That's Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11 and 15. And Isaiah 60, verses 3 to 5. Talk about, in the future, after the time of the Psalms were written, and Isaiah was written, of gifts being given to the Messiah. And certainly this is fulfilling that. And so those, those promises in Psalms and Isaiah are also looking not just to the time of the Magi, but beyond. And, and it's in effect saying when the nations are blessed by the Messiah, they will bring gifts to the King of Kings. That is future, that the nations... Every knee will bow, every tongue confessed, and the nations will bring gifts to the Messiah. Now, how would they have used the gifts? I mean, here's this poor couple. They are so poor that after Jesus was born, but before this day, when they went to give their sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem, which was required at the birth of a baby, you could bring a lamb, but if you were poor... You couldn't afford the lamb, you could bring a pigeon. And that's what Joseph and Mary brought. They're poor. Now all of a sudden they have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Bible does not tell us how they used this, but I wonder, did it finance their trip to Egypt? Which is coming up in the next verses that we won't cover this morning. Could be. It's an interesting thought. Well, then we have the obedience of the wise men in verse 12. And being warned in a dream. Notice that God is still in control of events. God was in control of events to get the Magi uh, down to, to, to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. He's in control of the events that had the great sign in the heavens of the star, the Shekinah. He's still in control of the events because he warns the Magi, the wise men, in a dream not to return to Herod. And they departed to their own country by another way because we know that if they had gone to Herod, Herod immediately would have sent soldiers to Bethlehem to kill the babies. Herod will do that later. But there's a lag in time here, enabling Joseph and Mary and Jesus to get out of Bethlehem. All of this is in the direction of the hand of God. And so God continues to control events. When people try to thwart God's will, God intervenes supernaturally to overcome all such actions. And certainly that happens here. So they went another way. God has thwarted Herod's plan, which not just Herod, this is Satan's plan to prevent Jesus from coming and dying on the cross. The purpose for which he was born, to prevent Jesus from paying the penalty of sin. And there are several times in the Gospels where you see Satan trying to prevent that. And he was trying here. But God has power that will thwart the plan even of the devil. When it is God's time, Jesus will die according to the plan of God. Not the plan of man, but the plan of God. Well, what do we, what do we make of this? It's interesting information but where do we go with it well i have written five lessons you might call them uh, from these events the first one jesus is the messiah the king of the jews and should be honored as such eternal we won't be back to matthew so turn over to the book of psalms psalm chapter 2 and verse 12 <clears throat> Psalm 2, verse 12. You know that wonderful uh, first psalm, blessed is the man that uh, doesn't dwell in the paths of the wicked and meditates on the word of God. And then goes from there to Psalm 2, starting out, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And it begins to talk about the Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, he, he, in verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. That's God the Father speaking to God the Son, calling him his son. Uh, today I've begotten you, today I've given you life. <clears throat> but then you go down to verse 12, telling the kings of the world, telling everyone in the world, kiss The sun. Kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun. Lest ye be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun. Come and put your trust in him for your salvation. This is what we are to do in light of the fact that Jesus is the king. Honor him by coming and trusting him. Kiss the son. Second lesson. Jesus is to be worshipped not just by Jews, but by all the nations and peoples of the world. And that's why the Christian is to have a heart for missions a heart for sharing the gospel with people who have never heard. And in the adult Sunday school class this morning, that that was the whole gist of, of the study that we had from church history, is taking the gospel to people who have never heard. He is the king of kings, and they need to know him and trust him and bow down before him. Third lesson God directs circumstances to make his son son known and worshiped. Think about the circumstances that God put into place where you would hear the gospel. Now, in my case, God worked the circumstances that I was born into a Christian home. My parents told me the gospel from the very time I was born. And I was in church from the time hearing the gospel. Some of you, that was not the case. And you were well into adulthood. And God directed somehow, some way, the word of God came to you. Someone you met at work. Someone, something you heard on the radio. Somewhere, you picked up a Gideon Bible. All kinds of ways. But God directed those circumstances. And then think about how God is directing my circumstances now that I'm a Christian, but that I might take the gospel and give the gospel to someone else. So just as God directed the circumstances in Matthew, he's directing circumstances today in our lives. The fourth lesson is Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship him. Herod didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. And Jesus was troubling to him. You read later in the New Testament of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a very religious man, self-made religion, where he's, he's done it all, and he is a good man, quote-unquote. But then Jesus arrests him on the D- Damascus Road, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so you read before that that Paul was there at the stoning of Stephen to death because of his testimony of Christ. He was troubled in what he heard there. He didn't say it, but apparently he was. And every time he then went and was for the purpose of arresting Christians, he was troubled. He didn't want to hear about Jesus. Jesus is troubling to people who don't want to worship him. I, this week, read a wonderful book. It's a brand new biography on Corrie ten Boom. It's called The Watchmaker's Daughter. I would commend it to you. And uh, there was a scene in there shortly after Corrie ten Boom was arrested. It's before she's sent to the concentration camp. It's kind of like in a prison or jail. And uh, she's meeting with her jailer. And they're trying to get information on her. And she keeps talking about Jesus. And this person very violently commands her, don't mention that name again or I will kill you. Jesus is troubling to people who don't want to worship him. And they need the gospel. That God would use his word. To awaken their heart. And then the fifth one. Worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing joy to him with sacrificial gifts. What's our sacrificial gift? Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Romans six talks about presenting the members of our body. We have temptation through our eyes, through our mind, through our hands, and we yield these to him instead of to sin. A lot in the Bible about giving our body to the Lord. That's part of our, to be part of our worship. So this morning I asked, have you paid homage to the King, Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. How do you pay homage to Him? How do you kiss the Son? You come as He has commanded in repentance of sin, and trust Jesus Christ as the only means of your salvation. You cannot do it uh, with your good works; it's through what Christ did on the cross. And then daily to be walking, following him and submitting ourselves to him. If you have not done that, I would beg you to do that even this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for sending your son, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the king of kings and Lord of lords. And Father, we humble ourselves just as the wise men did, bowing before him, humble themselves. We humble ourselves before you and kiss the Son, pay homage to the Son, bring glory to you for such a great salvation. Father, we pray that our lives daily, every day, would be a a living gift to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.